Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs. And the thing about entrepreneurs is, boy, we are proud people. I, I think that long before being an entrepreneur was cool, anyone who thought of themselves as an entrepreneur thought, I can't be anything else. I can't get a job. I can't fail. I can't just, you have to be an entrepreneur if you're an entrepreneur. And the reason I say that is because joining me is someone who, um, who did have to go and get a job. I met Lloyd Lobo back about half a decade ago at dinner. Guy was super confident. Everything seemed like it was going his way at a dinner and for people who were doing well. Um, and I didn't know this until I started reading up in preparation for this interview. He was working a job to keep his startup going. He was not in the best place in many ways, the best place of his life. But holy, did this guy turn things around, dude. All right. Lloyd is the founder of Boast, Boast.ai. It helps businesses recover their R&D costs from the government. And when we think R&D costs, I think we think a lot more complicated. When we think government, we think a lot more complicated. He's basically saying, look, if you create anything and it takes you a while to profit from it, you should talk to his people because they'll get the government to give you some some of your money back. We'll talk about how that works, how he grew up, uh, how he got here, what happened in that difficult transition period, and also how he was able to build his business largely as a consulting company and bootstrap it and impress a lot of his friends. We can do it thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first you've heard me talk about, if you have a website or need a website, you need good hosting and you'll get it from HostGator. If you go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. The second is if you have a team of people who work for you, whether they're employees or contractors, I'm going to tell you why you need Rippling to manage their payment and your relationship with them. Rippling.com slash Mixergy. Lloyd, man, good to have you here. I'm excited. It's been a while and thanks for having me on your show. Dude, um, let's first understand what you do. We were talking before we got started, Lloyd, that at Boast, you recover money for things that most people don't think about. Give me an example of what the government will help us, will Definitely. pay for. Definitely. So the U.S. government and between U.S. and Canada, over $20 billion is given in research and development tax credits to fund businesses, right? Globally, it's over $200 billion. U.S. alone last year gave over $20 billion. The problem is it's confusing and cumbersome to apply for because you got to figure out what work qualifies and what doesn't. And then you got to wait for the end of the tax year to apply with your taxes it's prone to frustrating audits because when the IRS audits you, they want to see documentation trail of all the work you claim because they want to make sure it's not vaporware and the people who worked on it and the expenses actually qualify per their criteria. And the last thing, it takes a long time to get the money. You got to incur a year of expenses, file it with your taxes, and then wait for the government to process it. And Boast.ai, we streamline and automate that process to help companies get more money in the door faster for less time and audit risk. Now, what qualifies is, is fairly simple, right? Um, you're developing new technology, products, processes, or materials for the purposes of sale, right? Uh, the second thing is during this effort, you are faced with uncertainties or challenges that you can't resolve with publicly available information. And publicly, publicly available literally means you can't Google search the answer. There's no open documentation. There's no open API or it's not accessible to you. So if the competitor across the street has solved a problem, it's not accessible to you. If a solution is super expensive and you can't buy it, you can't afford it, it's not let, accessible to you. Let me see if I understand this, Lloyd. I start a brand new business, build a website. It takes me a year to get the website off the ground and I'm paying two people to do it, maybe a designer or developer to get this off the ground. I don't know if it's gonna work out. I don't know if my approach makes sense, but I'm investing a year into this. And I'm paying these people. You're saying that would qualify for me getting money back from the government. 
There could be, depending could on be. what they're doing, right? So like okay. if you're if you're just going and propping up a Shopify store and like using a third party, there's no uncertainty, there's no challenge there. It's just time, right? I prop it up. But let's say you're building an application, a web application, and that web application now needs to integrate with a third party system. And those two systems are not designed to talk and you got to write the communication protocol from scratch. That qualifies. Let's say you're building an application that needs to parse through voice, video, text, apply machine learning, blockchain, all of these technologies. And there's a lot of uncertainty that work qualifies. Let's say you're trying to build something for a certain speed or accuracy, right? Let's say you're automating, you're, you're taking transcriptions from these calls, right? Yep. And you're automatically writing white papers and reports from it and eBooks from it. Whoa, 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 wait. The salary I pay myself, if I'm transcribing calls and writing an eBook, that qualifies? Not doing it manually, but if you build the technology to automate that process. Ah, and, because and the technology it. is uncertain. My ability as a human being to write it, it's proven that I could do it. But if yeah. I create, got it. Okay. So we do this. Government pays us money. What I like about, about your business is Boast will say, we don't want to get paid unless we get you money. It's a complicated process. We get you money. Great. So I asked, I went on Twitter. I said, could somebody just help me get an understanding, make sure that I'm not like getting carried away with this and that like, make me make sure I'm saying on this. Andy D. Lee responded back and he said, look, the IRS form for this is fairly simple. Trinet handles the filing, the reimbursements as part of payroll. It doesn't seem like this, this is useful for businesses. Why should they give Lloyd a percentage and still your business is based on getting a percentage? Your response to that is? My response to that is this, uh, Trinet files it once that you have the R&D study, the government. So like uh, one, one simple thing is, and I can, I can send it after the fact, but the government has audit guidelines on what needs to be claimed and what doesn't need to be claimed. If you're willy nilly just filling out a tax form without an R&D study, and this is what it's called, the IRS called it an R&D study. You need to have an R&D study of the work, you, of the projects you're working on and the associated time spent on it as it meets the IRS's four-part test for the R&D credit. So the IRS's four-part test is um, uh, permitted purpose. Are you developing new tech or improving existing tech products, processes, materials for the purposes of sale? Were, were you overcoming uncertainty that you couldn't resolve with publicly available information? Did you work through a systematic iterative process to get to the end outcome? And was it in a field of science or engineering? So yes, you can fill out the simple one-page form and say, okay, 100% of my engineers are R&D. When the IRS audits you three years from now and they drag you to the mud to figure out, okay, show me all those projects and I wanna see contemporaneous documentation. And this is in the tax law. And this is in the IRS's audit guidelines. They wanna see contemporaneous documentation and contemporaneous documentation literally means this. Where you're, you were documenting the R&D work as you went along through the year. So yes, like Trinet files it and everyone files it and it's easy. You can tell them, yeah, hundred percent when three years down the road, the IRS audits you and you're like, I don't know, call Trinet. And they're like, no, you claimed it, right? Uh, and that's why any company with a legit CFO or a CPA will wanna see an R&D study for the work done. So okay. that's, uh, that's one thing. The other thing that I heard is, uh, the other thing that I understand is, if I have a person who's, I'm in San Francisco, I might have somebody who's living in a small town that I don't know. I'm paying them in that small town. That small town might be encouraging R&D there. And there's also opportunities for me to claim based on where they work. Am I right? Exactly. So you can get state credits. Different states uh, have different rules. So like um, California, all boiled down, it'll end up being like seven and a half percent in tax credit that you can offset California taxes. Federal, federal R&D tax credits can be used to offset your social security tax, which you get as a refund. 
And if you're um, over 5 million in revenue, then you have to be profitable and you can offset income taxes. New York state has its own tax credit programs that are refundable. Virginia is refundable. A lot of states are non-refundable, meaning non-refundable just means that you need to be profitable to take advantage of the R&D credits. So it's it's complex. The rules are complex. And, uh, and there's th- few problems, right? The problem is not just and this is a big education problem. What what um, what your friend just said on Twitter is that I'm just going to file it. Like it seems simple. Let me just file it. The if you look at the audit guideline for the R and D credit, it says specifically not to do that. It says specifically prove. Make sure you have all the proof of all this work you've done in this format before you file it. Because when okay. we audit you, we're going to ask it. All right. It makes total sense to me that there would be a company that would handle it for me. I also love the way that. I, how do you get paid? So we get paid. We take a percentage of the return when they get it. Right. Typically, typically sub, uh, like it can be as low as 5%, can be as high as 15, 18%. That's All it. right. I love the idea that somebody says, look, we're going to take this complicated process that you may not have even thought that you that you should go through and didn't know there was a big payoff. We will walk you through the whole thing and only get paid when we get you the payoff, if we get you the payoff. You came up, I want to know how you came up with this idea, how you built it and why it didn't take off. It's when it makes so much freaking sense. It's just so freaking logical. Were you a bad entrepreneur back then? We'll find out. Here's the thing. You started this thing when you had a job where the work-life balance was out of whack. You told our producer, I got an email from my company asking me why I wasn't in the office at one point. And you said, my wife's a resident. Um, I need to go home. Talk, talk about what's going on at that period in your life. Yeah, so so it's it's funny uh, to walk through the backstory of Boast. My co-founder at Boast, a CEO of Boast, and I are best friends. We went to university together. We studied engineering together. And after engineering, he worked at Johnson & Johnson. He got into their engineering leadership program, built software there. He did a startup. That startup failed. Felt he needed to study accounting. Studied accounting, ended up at big four accounting firms. Because of his combo of account, accounting and engineering, they put him in their R&D tax credit group. Right? It's a big, big business for big four. And uh, I, after engineering, I moved from Canada to the US. My wife was in, uh, my, my wife was in medical school. She got into residency. And I was working at a startup running sales marketing and my wife was a resident. So she, the residents work hundred hours and she was at Drexel in Philly. And I was in the office daily till nine, eight, nine, whatever needed, 10. One week I started going home at six and uh, I got an email saying, hey, I used to like it when you were in the office until eight, nine o'clock. This week you've been going home at six. It's strange. Your wife's a resident. What do you need to go home for? <laughs> right? I still have that email. The reason I was going home was because my parents are in Toronto and they were visiting me after like a year or so. And Alex called me around the same time and he's like, Lloyd, man, globally over 200 billion is given in these complicated tax credits and it's broken the way accounting firms do it. Um, let's automate, streamline the process. And I literally cried to him. I'm like, bro. If I can work with you to build a company that I want to work for, I'm in. That was it. What, what, was, broken, what was broken about the process? The process was, uh, what was broken about the R&D task credit process was this. You finish a year of, um, of expenses, then your accountant comes and tells the CTO, we can claim for this R&D credits. Most times accountants don't even inform the company that the R&D task credits exist. But in the in the light in, in when they do, they tell the account they tell the company, let me talk to your CTO and tell me all the work you did that meets this narrow criteria. Then let me spend hours doing technical interviews 
with your engineers on the team and like going back and forth and grilling them to write all this documentation that goes with it. Then nobody time tracks in the world of agile. Then they put them through the mud of, Hey, give me time for all the people who spend on this time on this. And then they're like guesstimating, right? So those are two things that's broken. The other thing that's broken is you got to incur a year of these expenses to then file it with your taxes to then wait for the government to process it and give you this money. And this third thing is a new product we're launching. We've launched, we've raised a hundred million for it. And, and what we're saying is we know how much we integrate. So Boast integrates with your technical systems, your project management systems, your financial system. So we, we integrate with tools like Gusto, like QuickBooks, like Jira, like GitHub. And we pull your data real time through the year to marry your technical data with your financials to one, identify what work qualifies to figure out who spent how much time on it and how much your R&D is, the value mm. of your R&D through the year. So now we have that and we've had a 100% success rate over the last several years across thousands of claims. We're telling people that why wait, why wait for your tax season to get it from the government? Use Boast and get the money now as you go through the year. So now sense. we're gone from a company that's saying, we'll automate your paperwork to saying we're a company that's going to improve your cash flow. And that's why we're, we become all the more indispensable. Uh, you know what? I've had accountants <clears throat> tell me in the past and I brush it off because I didn't want to do the work. They brush it off because they didn't want to do the work. I thought I'm not going to get anything from the government anyway. And there was not enough upside for them to get mired in the issue for me. And I, I also thought I'm moving so fast. This little bit of money doesn't matter. But it is significant. And if someone else could have done it, I would have totally jumped on it. All right. So that's what you said. The two of you decide to get together and you launch Boast and Automaticity. What was the other company? So we, we, we started Boast as a consulting firm because we didn't want to raise money. I had worked at other venture-backed companies before and Alex had been in that space. And we were like, you know what happens in venture is you raise money and you're forced to spend money. And that puts you on this path of sort of profits and, and revenue and growth before people. And I was just coming off that experience where I wanted to work and build a company that I wanted to work for. So we decided to bootstrap the company and we came up with this business model that we would charge people when they get the money. So our cash cycle was very narrow. And at the same time, Alex had another idea, uh, which, which turned into a company called Automatically. And, uh, and the idea there was uh, basically a chatbot for customer service agents. And this was 2013, 14. Customer service, like Intercom, nobody knew Intercom back then. And we built this chatbot for customer service agents. Uh, and the key mistake and the learning there was focus. One, we're focused on two different things. Two, uh, even with, uh, with Automatically, we did all our customer development research on large enterprises who have lots of data. And so when we ran tests on JetBlue with our, with our bot, on Twitter, we could respond 90 some odd percent as a, as, as a real human. So we did all our customer validation talking to large enterprises. The issue was large enterprises are using tools like Oracle and Salesforce for customer service. And the process to get integrated in their ecosystem takes a year with security review and so on. So we just pivoted immediately and said, let's go to Zendesk. They were the most known at the time and get an app in their marketplace. We met the API guy and he's like, yeah, just build something, throw it in their marketplace. So we built an app automatically, throw it in their marketplace. The message was simple, use automatically and intelligently respond to your customers like a real human automatically, mm -hmm. like 
automatically respond like a real human. Thousands of people were downloading it. And then they were just like yelling at me saying, dude, this thing is spitting off gibberish, stop. And then we realized that it worked on large enterprises because large enterprises have voluminous data. Oh. And Zendesk customers at the time were like average 30 some odd employee companies with less data. And then we got dis- disheartened and time went by and then Boast was also fairly new. And you know there wasn't just enough money for both of us to keep our families alive and the opportunity to do Speakeasy came along. Wait, and before I'm like, you get to Speakeasy, first of all, <clears throat> I, I see you were working with desk.com also back, uh, yeah. that was that little company that was bought by uh, Salesforce. Um, I, I think also the spelling of the name, I didn't realize it was it was meant to be automatically. It's just spelled a little bit off of the way automatically would be written. Now I see why I mispronounced it. The Going back then to when Bose was just a consulting, were you just going to do what the big four were doing, but on a smaller scale? Or did you have any autom- uh, any automation and software involved? So when we just started, we and, and this is the way to build software companies, I've realized today, customers want an outcome. And I'm really working backwards to that. Customers don't want software. They want an outcome. The outcome we bring customers is a check faster, bigger, better than, you know, uh, risk-free, faster and bigger than what you would do through anyone else. And um, what we said was we knew the big four process. We knew the accounting firm process. They throw bodies at it and be, and they, they optimize for dollars per hour. And so any problem they throw on, they bring a SWAT team of accountants who interview you and their goal is to just charge the hour. And we said, we'll never do that. And the other thing is accountants coming at the end of the, if I come in at the end of the month and I say, Andrew, like tell me in, uh, in, in the beginning of uh, February, who did you interview that said these three things? Yeah. How are you going to remember? Yeah. And so they go this and do this painful process with developers and CTOs who want to build stuff and not, not do this. So we said, the way to do this is we'll be proactive. We'll go regularly, monthly, quarterly, we'll meet with them. And manually, we'll dig into their Jira, their GitHub, in their project management and financial ah, okay. tools. So we mimicked what software would do. But the reason for doing that is you get the goal. The way to build software and a, and a good company is nail down the process, turn that process into workflow, then codify the workflow. Because if you build software on day one, you're going to be chasing product market fit. So we got to enough customers where our process worked and we're like, bingo, now let's build software. The issue was we were constantly not having enough money to to feed ourselves versus build because we bootstrap, right? And so you wanted to bootstrap because you'd seen mistakes at other companies where they were beholden to investors. You were committed to, to going bootstrap. It was also an, it was also more of a consulting company or services business, which investors aren't eager to jump yeah, exactly. in and support. How did you get the clients to come in? So, uh, and this is this is a big thing, right? We first started by manually cold out outreaching people. You cold email a bunch of people. You cold call people. People are like, who the hell are you? Like, you know, like this is this is ten, almost eight years ago, right? Like, who are you? Um, and and so. I'm like, you know, nobody's going to respond to us. We'd, it's, it's funny, we'd, we'd call people and, and we'd say things like, hey, we're your neighborhood, could you meet with us? And then we'd get ready and run and hop on the train to go and meet with them kind of thing. But quickly realized that people ultimately in software or anything else, service, whatever it is, people buy from people and relationships transcend companies. And so we said, you know, we were failed, dejected founders uh, from uh, being a part of failed outings before. So we said, let's build a community. 
And, and so we started doing these pizza nights where we'd invite speakers and founders learning from founders, and that started catching on. And the brand value of those pizza nights started getting around where like, oh, you know, these Bose guys, they host these pizza events and they bring awesome speakers and we learn from each other. And like those, those events started getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it turned into a conference and it turned into like evolved into what it is today, the Traction Conf community. But honestly, the brand and the value of giving people like help and becoming, we became successful by enabling the success of others. So, you know, like our business model is we make money when you make money and, and our marketing evolved from being cold calling to effectively doing events and, and community events. And that's how even we met. We, like, I know, I know um, I came to know of Speakeasy and all my network is because we started doing these events, which today is turned into traction, which has got a hundred thousand subscribers. And we do two webinars a week, monthly dinners, annual conference and whatnot, right? right let, me, let me take a moment to talk about my first sponsor. And then I wanna come back and ask you how, how you got good at events because even that's un, unexpected. And then what happened to your event business, also unexpected. My first sponsor is HostGator. Let me ask you this. If somebody is thinking, I'd like to start a service business that potentially could become a software company if we get the process right and then, and then use software to, to systemize it. How do they come up with an idea for that? So if they have a HostGator account, they could naturally build this landing page and sales process for their service. How do they find the right service the way that you did? Service for hosting? Uh, no, sorry. The service that they would do, that they would perform for clients and they'd use HostGator to host their, their business site, hopefully. But how did, how did they find it? If you didn't have Alex today and you need to find something that you could service, that you can turn into a service and then eventually turn into software, how would you do it? I would, I would basically um, try to brainstorm a bunch of ideas and reach out to people. And I would, I would throw something like a simple landing page on HostGator and build huh? a list of people and I'd email them and be like, what resonates with you? Kind of like mm. a smoke screen, right? Like try to, my philosophy in life is sell stuff before you build it. Because honestly, the model of build it and they'll come is mired in failures, lots but and what, lots of failures. What you're saying though is start off by asking people what their problems are. So let me ask you this, what takes up a large part of your day that you hate doing or your year? A lot of my year when we were bootstrapped and now it's changing is grunt work. Things like editing videos for the conferences, things like writing blog posts, things like manually reaching out to people, conversation. Like it's, it's a lot of grunt work, right? I still, I, as a founder, I, I do a lot of, sale, not sales really, but evangelizing the company to partners, to investors, all of that, a lot of that. So a lot of grunt work takes time. And um, I think as a founder, you got to only focus on one thing, evangelizing, evangelizing the company externally and evangelizing the company internally, meaning making sure the people internally are happy and you've like unaffed their situation. Like the job of a leader is to build, inspire, and motivate a team to deliver and deliver is the lagging indicator. Like making sure the people are happy and taken care of and externally, you know, uh, you're evangelizing the company. So I could I, literally, if I could free up my time to just speak to people all day, that would be great. But a lot of my day gets spent in like doing grunt work, like, you know, like, like uh, editing stuff or even or to this day stuff. you're doing editing, video editing. It's stopped now and it, it, it is stopping. Like I edited the last few traction videos on our YouTube channel, but like- Wow, I used to, we, dude. 
I overdid it. I overdid it. I overdid it. Trust me. Okay. I'm like, I wore the cheap to the core. <laughs> I'm seeing some grunt work that could be turned into a system and eventually turned into software. Video editing, absolutely hire a team of people. There's a certain process. You could systemize it. I've seen people do it. The other thing that I noticed as you're speaking is that as a CEO, your job is to evangelize. I, I'm I mean, not CEO. So I'm a founder. I'm, I'm okay. the founder president. My co-founder okay. is the CEO. Well, like Alex is. Oh, okay. as, as a leader, your job is to evangelize. I've noticed that there are a lot of fan freaking tastic leaders who stink at telling their story outside of their service. I'll tell you what I'm thinking about. Um, the founder of Legacy Box, they take their photos and they turn it into, into digitized products. He's doing, what is it? Tens of millions of dollars in revenue. I talked to him in private. He's such a good thinker about how to organize businesses, how to lead people. He doesn't have freaking time to sit and do this. I, I would love a service that would do what I do, like these interviews. Imagine someone just called you up and said, Lloyd, tell me what's going on in your week. They picked on a couple of things that made sense, recorded the whole thing, turned it into a blog post, turned it into a podcast where it's just you speaking to get the voice of the founder out there. It would be brilliant. I bet you have these random thoughts about something that if I just trigger you, all right, people listen to me. If that becomes a service that you want to run or anything else, and you will need a website to host this, to tell the world about it, I urge you to go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. When you use that URL, you'll get the lowest price available. You'll also frankly be giving me credit for sending you over and I appreciate the support and they'll take good care of you. They will host you and they will grow with you. If you go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. They'll host you. They'll never ghost you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, you, you've, you've told our producer, you know what? One of the reasons I got good at hosting was um, and doing events is I had to plan my wedding because my wife refused to do it. You had this random thing. I, I know we're going off topic for business, but what happened with you and your wife? Yeah. So, so what happened was in 2008, now this is probably a story I've, I've not shared much, but the way to say the story is I spend my honeymoon in Thailand with my best man. And then when you unpack that and realize why did that happen? My wedding got called off uh, two days before the wedding. And um, this was 2008, the financial crisis happened. I was uh, in product at a, at a startup in New Jersey and, and they were laying off left, right and center. Um, within a few weeks was my, my wedding and it was to happen in India. Well, I come from Indian background, my wife does too. And we went to India and before the wedding, the wedding was just called off. Like my, my wife got into med school in second year of undergrad without MCATs. She's brilliant, right? And so the mindset, you know, Indian families and, and things get very stressful. You lost a job, like, you know, uh, you don't know what's going to happen. And, and the mindset, I think that was probably one of the lowest points in my life. It's like, it's Christmas and two days later is your wedding and the wedding's called off. Right. So why why would a, a bad job market mean that your wedding's called off? It was it wasn't bad. It was a bunch of things that got heated, and it it came to a situation where it's like you know he's not the right guy for our daughter, kind of thing, right? Like, oh, because if look, he doesn't have good, great prospects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't have okay. great prospects. Uh, um, it was a bunch of things that led to that wedding getting called off, and it's just added to a lot of stress. And and so my wife was in med school at the time. Um, and things things got just out of whack, right? Like literally, here I am saying uh, I'm 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 flying to India to get married. My whole family from all over the world is coming to India to get married, and uh, it's funny. My parents were in Toronto at the time. There was a snowstorm in Toronto, um, and so they missed their flight to Mumbai. And the, the, finally, the flight that came to Mumbai, they missed their flight to southern India, where where the wedding was to be. So they had to take a bus. The bus broke down. <laughs> 
they had to find and they had to find a car and so they find a rental car like six of them in this like you know um, uh, sort of like jeep wrangler looking thing they get to the house where the wedding is and like it's like the wedding is like in shambles so it was uh, no wedding no no wedding like say the wedding's called yeah, off how, how are you not upset with with your father-in-law i mean uh god bless his soul he, he passed away since but like i mean uh I was I was extremely upset. I mean, it almost came to blows between us then because okay. uh, as soon as my mom entered, they came and they're like, you know what? Um, I think like you know, I think uh, this wedding is it, you know, the kids are not getting there. Basically, he basically the words that came out were, I don't think he's the right uh, choice for yeah. for her, and I don't think she wants to marry him either. And, uh, and so this is off. And my mom's like, Oh, she, they just came from a long flight. So she, she fell to the ground and, and she's like, Oh, I think I'm going to die. My mom like got a little dramatic. So, yeah, I would. so, so, so then I, I, I kind of lost it too. And I'm like, Hey, if something happens to her, like, you know, it's going to come to a fist fight between us. And then, uh, it, it just, it just like everything escalated from there. Um, and it was, it was just a bad, bad situation. So what ended up happening was a couple of days in, my cousin was in from Dubai and he says to me, uh, like, you know, they're all there. They're like, you need to like, get out of here to get your mind off of it. And he's like, do you have those honeymoon tickets to Thailand? Let's just, <laughs> let's just go. Right. Let's just go. So I, I go to Thailand, we go, we party and whatnot. I'm trying to get my mind off things. We're in this honeymoon suite. The, the people in the hotel, you know, in, in, in Asia and Thailand, like, uh, being gay is taboo. So they were thinking we're like gay because we're in this honeymoon suite. It was, it was all kinds of like <laughs> house comedy of errors happening. And then I get a call from her saying she's not in Southern India. She's in this um, sort of the Hawaii of India, Goa. And, and so then I go there, I meet her, we spend new years together. And, uh, and literally we had a bridal party of 30. They were all there at a shack in Goa. And I stood on the shack uh, bar top and popped a bottle of champagne. And I'm like, I was supposed to get married to her a week or so ago, a few days ago. And here I am like, you know, popping a bottle of champagne with her. So then um, we went back to the U S and she was stressed. She didn't, she sort of, you know, it was, it was very tough to make it work because now it's like, we're going against the family, her family to make this happen, but we work it all out at the end. And my wife was like, listen, I tried to plan one wedding and it didn't happen. So uh, you know, I'm leaving the, the other one to you. So I planned my wedding end to end in, in Toronto. Like it was phenomenal. It's probably the most fun party I ever hosted. And despite that, there were 350 people at that wedding. There were two bars. I planned it end to end on an Excel spreadsheet with vendors. And that's what made me really good at event planning. <laughs> and so when we started Boast and we're like, we need another channel because cold calling is not working. I'm like, let's do events and invite people. <laughs> and, and I kid you not, the last time we did Traction Live, somebody said that Traction feels like a wedding with strangers. <laughs> I, I can't believe it. I, you know what? In some ways, I think I would prefer that either I or my wife would have planned the wedding. The combination of the two is just way too many decisions to try to harmonize on when somebody's got to say, I don't care. And the other person says, fine. How, did you hold any resentment towards her because she wasn't she wasn't going to get married? I, I held a lot of resentment towards her, her family for a long time. Although, like, you know, I, I held it always against the family because uh, in our culture, we always beholden the parents and we, we sort of go with whatever they say kind of thing. Like, although we're like yeah. raised, raised over here and whatnot. Right. Um, so I held it against the family for a long time. I think over time I've had like every two or three years, some major incident 
where then you value, you know, when you hold on to, to, to uh, hate, it's harming you. It's not harming anyone else. So the best yeah. thing is to let go. Do you ever feel like, you know what, look at how they raised her. She's your wife is super bright, super yeah. accomplished. You ever feel like maybe it's that attitude that got her there. I need to be that way with my family too. have kids that know that you're not marrying somebody unless they produce and you're not getting whatever you're not getting dinner unless you get AIDS or something that aggressive. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very different uh, than that. My parents uh, uh, have been very flexible, like, you know, um, uh, and, and that's how I sort of believe in building companies, give people the values and the vision and the metrics, but give them the autonomy. Okay. Uh, be an be an input, not an approver. Okay. You can't decide. You can't coddle people for the rest of their life, and you can't decide for them. Um, I'm not saying either way is better or worse. I'm saying what works for me. I think what works for me is hiring and working. It's basically giving people the value. Like this is these are our values, and this is what you know good looks like. Run with it because it translates across, right? Um, sort of like micromanaging people to the nth degree um, is something that I wouldn't be able to do very well because it would just add a lot of stress to me. So a a lot of parents, like they're just like shove their kid from class to class to class. And and it's it's, it's a hard thing I feel, right? (laughs) Um, Do you, um, let's talk about the conference. I happen to bring this up with another guest. Traction conference, there's someone who worked for you who took over the social media accounts? Did they take over the business? What happened there? Yeah, so so when we were doing this pizza nights, eventually we built enough of a following that we said, we'll do a conference. And um, we partnered with a person who was also another conference organizer. And he said, like, let's come together and build a bigger conference. So we came up with this event. It was not called Traction at the time. It was called Cloud Factory. And... Uh, we did this event. We bring all these awesome speakers. Like we had uh, LinkedIn's chief growth officer. We had Jeff Lawson from Twilio. We have VMware CEO, Red Hat CEO. This is 2014. And it was phenomenal. And we said, we'll, f- we'll do the conference in Banff. They all came for free. Banff's like a freaking ski resort. It's, it was amazing. And I didn't know this person had all this thing going on in his mind that he, on the day of the conference, I was locked out of the Twitter account I was locked out of the email account and he e-blasted the whole database and attendees saying this conference is being rebranded to something else and he launches ticket sales. And then after the conference, he tells me, and and based on my assumptions, the conference had made like $250,000 at least. And after that, he tells me, tells me and Alex that this conference, uh, made less than $50,000 and take it, you know, your share is $20,000, take it or leave it. Imagine we're not making any money, like, you know, post is going, it's, uh, and, and we got to feed clients and, and, and whatnot. And we're like really hoping that this thing would pay out. And automatically we had just shuttered automatically too. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the business model of boast was we get paid after the customer get paid. So you can't go back and ask your customers for money. So there's that cash cycle issue. So we're like, Oh man, this is like, I was really holding on for this money and this happens. The thing is he took that money and he went and paid a few big name speakers and we've never paid anyone at Traction. He paid a few big name speakers to attract them for, for, for his conference brand. So guess what? In life, relationships and passion transcends companies. They can take your ideas, but they can't take your passion away. 
So he did the conference and then he was never done anything after that because we had to, we, we sued him. We put an injunction on his conference and he had to settle. But by the time, like the legal fees and everything, the only reason I stuck with that lawsuit was we stuck with it because of the principle of it, right? Like somebody can't just come in and swindle you and go. Right. Yeah. And, and we, we ended up with after everything, we ended up with probably the same amount, 20, 20,000. <laughs> but he didn't get away with it. And you never got that conference back. Did you get the email list back? I got it. I got all my assets back. Okay. And then I partnered with a nonprofit launch Academy in Vancouver who are great, great, great We're still guys. partnered with now. Yeah. Who are we still partnered with now? And we, we rebranded to traction and today traction has, has become a, a good enough conference brand where people know traction, right? Wow. We what? All right. I'm actually going to tie this into my second sponsor and then we'll get back into what happened with Boast, why it didn't work out. But my second sponsor is Rippling. Rippling, I've always talked about as the way that, that you pay people, right? You have people who work for you as contractors, as employees. You need an easy way to pay them, not going to take up too much of your time, make it easy for them to sign up. The thing that I should mention in relation to this is Rippling says, yes, we'll make it easy for you to pay your people and onboard them. But that also means we'll give them access to the email accounts, to their social accounts, to all the different things that they need, to the Slack accounts and the Slack channels they need. And that means also, Lloyd, if if you hire someone, you don't give them a username and password. You just say, look, you're on Rippling, the same service that pays you and you get to see how much you got paid. And you go and deal with all the other stuff that has to do with HR. You use that to log into our accounts. That way, if you say, sorry, we're not working with you, all you have to do is go back into Rippling uncheck a few boxes or press some buttons and disconnect them and they don't have access and then you can move on. All if right. I, if I if I use Rippling to give them access, probably like I would have had my email account and I wouldn't have had to like, yeah. you wouldn't have to be able to the do all this. The whole thing. And ideally things never work out that badly. And in, in an ideal world, you make it easy for them to onboard. You give them access to all the apps they need. They know exactly where they live. They get paid. You don't have to spend forever trying to figure out how do I pay this guy because he moved to London last week. He was in San Francisco. Now he's there. No, it doesn't matter. They let you pay. Contractors, employees get paid and your team's software all managed properly from Rippling. If you want a demo to see how amazing this is, that's what turned me on to them and made me say, okay, forget it. We're switching over to Rippling. Go get the demo. Let them walk you through how it works. You'll be amazed. Rippling.com slash Mixergy is how you get that demo. All right. So Bose was doing so well, dude. How, what, why didn't, what was it that was the problem? I think, I think in the early days, what was the thing was as a consulting firm, you got to throw bodies at servicing the client. We had this very efficient process, but it required many bodies and we had to pay for those bodies, right? Customers want an outcome they don't want software right and 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 we were also doing the conference that took a hit and we did automatically that shuttered so it's like where's the money right like only like there's only so much money to go around and so it got really hard and like you know you're living in the bay area your wife's just finishing fellowship um and so it's like it, it came to a thing where i'm like you know what i have to get a job to sustain my lifestyle uh, but just I understand, your wife said, look, if yeah. you got to get a job, she did. Yeah. She's like, she's like, basically, if you don't get a job, then, you know, we're going to have to forego like household help to take care of the kids. And if we can't afford that, then, um, you know, either, either you have to sit at home and look after the kids or I have to. And, and she's like, that's not feasible. Right. Uh, for either of us. So the good thing is 
we did the traction through traction. We got to know so many people that I came across Byron Dieter, who's on the Forbes Midas list. And he's the godfather of SaaS investor in Box and Twilio and whatnot. And he had founded this company and incubating this company at Bessemer Ventures called Speakeasy. And he asked if I could join the team and help on the growth and product growth side. And I took that opportunity because it's like, oh, I'm going to get money. And uh, it was a fantastic learning experience because they put me on the driver's seat. Like I was literally driving how we acquired customers, how we made product decisions, the go-to-market it, it was a fantastic experience, right? And I could make money. That's the most important thing. Salary, you mean? Salary, yeah. and, and Speakeasy did, um, it allowed groups to stay connected online. Am I right? So Speakeasy was a conferencing tool for salespeople. It enabled salespeople to close more deals faster by preparing them for their sales calls, by aggregating information about their clients before the call, by telling them what to say on the call and automatically updating the CRM after the call and generating a set of action items. So but the thing using it to host the conference too? Yes. Then so that was Got the it. fundamental mistake why Speakeasy failed is we were built on top of calling infrastructure. And so the way we launched, which was a little silly, was we we built a mobile conferencing app. Um, and, and the company was funded by Bessemer, Salesforce, and, and Twilio. And we launched this conferencing app in the App Store, and we got tens of thousands of people signing up. You remember the Hawaii campaign we ran? That you I saw? only know because I saw it in your SIG file to us. Like at the, <laughs> after the dinner, it was like, blah, blah, blah. And by the way, hawaii.speakeasy.co. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we we did all these campaigns. We got like 15,000 people sign up or some crazy number like okay. that. I, I was on Eric Sue's podcast as well, talking about how we got to 10,000 plus uh, customers okay. just post-launch. The issue there was, as I profiled those users, they were butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers. It was everybody under the sun. Bernie Sanders' team was using it for election campaigning. There were pastors who were using it for uh, doing running service. Who doesn't because want a free, free calling app? Oh, it's like Zoom for free. Yeah, it's Zoom for free back in the day. Who doesn't want it for free? The Not thing it. is, we didn't build our own calling infrastructure because we wanted to build sales features on top. So every free user were costing us $20, $30. Ah. What we had hoped was everyone who would sign up would be salespeople. They were not. They were like... You know, mm. uh, all kinds of people, right? Taxi people were using it for dispatch. It, it was bonkers. The thing though is ads are like a drug, right? And like users are also a drug, like a vanity metric. So there was a huge tension around when I was saying, let's shut down free and move to paid. Because everyone was like, oh, we're getting like this Slack-like adoption. But I'm like, they're not the ideal users and they're churning, right? Because as soon as you make them pay, they're not going to pay. We're not a calling app. We're a sales tool. And there was a lot of friction. And finally, there was agreement, let's make it paid. There were 300 people who stuck around. They were all salespeople. We'll build the technology just for the salespeople. But honestly, being unfocused as a business enabled us to waste so much time that when we did get product market fit, we ran out of money, but not enough traction to raise the next round. So after uh, that incident, I uh -huh. took a couple months off. Um, I spent so much time with my family, cleared my head, uh, went back to Boast. Alex and I said, let's double down on, on the vision we had was to automate this. We rebranded Boast from a consulting firm, which was Boast Capital. We rebranded to Boast AI. We launched at Saster as a tech-enabled, software-enabled. And that's been the journey from 2017 to now we got from like, 
zero to eight figures plus in revenue bootstrap. We closed 123 million USD in funding. And uh, now we've gone, we've literally, we're going to be almost hundred people this year. So it's wow. been a phenomenal, crazy journey. <laughs> what's, what's the automation that you were able to add when you were bootstrapping? Oh, so when we're bootstrapping, we hired a couple of developers and all the stuff that I said we were gathering annually, like, you know, let's go in and ask for what is their technical uh, in the typing, going into their Jira, their GitHub, their their QuickBooks and pulling all those data points, all the questions you ask them manually. Yes. You would just do integrations with Jira, with GitHub. So our software right now, you sign up, you link your Jira, you link your GitHub, you link your Gusto for payroll, uh, you link QuickBooks, and we start pulling, ingesting that data in real time through the year. So real time, we're analyzing through the year what work qualifies for R&D, what doesn't, the expenses. And so we can literally we know at any given time in the year how much you've spent on R&D. And then by the time the year rolls around, it's like a couple of conversations and we can file the application. We well, can automate it. What's the first part of that that you were able to build when you had such a small, did you have a small budget? It seems like it in the beginning, yeah, right? Yeah, we, 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 we had a small budget because we had we had some customer money. And uh, the first thing we started building was workflows. Like what does that mean? How, like workflows, meaning the stuff that you're doing manually, like things like capturing customers, things like reaching out, things like integrations, right? Like, so you'd use like GitHub or Jira or QuickBooks or Gusto's API to pull the data in automatically into the system. Because think about it. Uh, what is software really? It's enabling some workflow. It's enabling some yep. process that you're doing manually. And what is manually? Manually is like typing and reaching out to people and pulling and moving things from one folder to the other, right? You know, yes, like, I mean, Dropbox and Google Drive, they took all that offline stuff of files and cabinets, but it's still, it's a lot of moving and shoving and blocking and tackling. And so was and if it, you can, was it then saying, look, we're going to just go into their QuickBooks and pull in only the data that we're allowed to yeah, go into, exactly. right? And then put it in, and you knew which data you needed exactly. and then put it into what a spreadsheet in the beginning. It, it just put it into a table in a database and, and, and software and then have a UI to manipulate it. Right. Got it. And then a human being would go in and say, okay, I, I know which developers I need to look at. Let's yeah. go and do a quick search to see what those developers, how much those developers spend time on whatever. Exactly. And over time in the last year, we've added like machine learning engineers who are now like we've been writing programs to then classify uh, and cluster those data points and then tag it automatically, all of that stuff. Right. So the way is over these experiences, speakeasy automatically, and now both we come to realize in a very sort of long, painful way is that the way to automate services is one, figure out a process that is real time that you can do manually, mm -hmm. run enough customers through it to, to, do, to, get, to get the process right, right? Then codify that process into software and then you'll have enough data points. Once you have enough data, then you can apply machine learning to mm. intelligently do it. And that's, if you look at a company like, uh, you know, you've probably heard of Udemy, right? Yep. Yeah. So Udemy's founder launched Carbon Health and they're going to be a billion dollar company. They're, they're basically, you would say the new healthcare system and they're using technology and automation to streamline healthcare services. And it's the same model. He said in the early days, he just had a clinic in his office and people didn't, patients didn't know that they were test cases, right? Like they were basically going through a more automated process of whole fulfillment, right? Because it's not, the way to automate services is just not building technology because there's, you need to have humans in the loop. So it's operational design plus technology. 
automate the grunt work, figure out what the grunt work is and get a, try to automate it in the best way possible and then have humans in the loop to make it more intelligent, to add the last mile. You know, I feel like you explained Aaron's business better than he has. I heard him on Axios and I thought he did a great job talking about how he was able to help with COVID-19 and how he did a better job in the government. I sent him a message about it, but I don't feel that I understood carbon health's magic until I heard you talk about it. If I, if I understand you right, he's got actual in-person clinics. It's just the interaction that is the busy work of the grunt work is more automated and got it. And I'm oversimplifying, but I get what you're talking about here. And the, the thing is he's got HIPAA and he's got all these compliance things. So that's the thing, right? We're in, in a similar industry, accounting, there's compliance, there's IRS. So we can't just willy-nilly just do stuff and claim it. If the IRS audits our clients two years, three years down the road, the client is on the hook. So we right. need to make sure all the data stitches together, it's compliant. So when the IRS or the Canadian government says audit, we say, hey, this is the trail. This is the timestamp data. This On this project, these three engineers spend so much time and this is the timestamp. So like it, it's it's you're never going to eliminate humans talking to humans when it's a compliance process. But what you can do is streamline all the busy work. You can automate the busy work, right? Mm -hmm. The work about the work. Were you ever able to, um, well, all right. Were you ever able to, to get in financing that would give you a loan on the money you were expected to get from your clients after they got the money they were expecting to get from the IRS? How do you mean? Like, uh, like financing? Like it, yeah, it seems like you waiting a year for your client to get their money before they pay you is just insane. It's insane, but you know what? When you're two guys running a consulting firm that's a new shop- People uh, aren't lending you money. What At what point were you able to borrow money? I think I think in that, uh, like, you know, 2017 timeframe, we started- When you we got start, back from Speakeasy. I, I think in that, in that timeframe, 2016, when we started having enough customers as a consulting firm, I think uh, I think business started turning around. We're able to get loans. I think I think even in 2016 ish, 2015 ish, the bank started giving us a little loan and whatnot, right? Because now you have a customer profile. Mm -hmm. The business just get healthier over time. It's just painful because you know your cash cycle is so long, right? Yeah. Now it's like a non-issue, right? Like I think next year we'll hit. <laughs> I think I think I think we'll do more than 40 million in revenue next year. So now it's a different ballgame, right? Like we're uh, we're on a different trajectory and a pace, but. Uh, I don't think I would want it any different, man, because the learnings you get from doing it yourself and the pleasure. Um, I think if we raised money and built like this big company, I probably would never value it. Or maybe it's different kinds of stress. Here you value it. Like everything you look back and you're like, man, like I really earned this. <laughs> I read that article where, where you, you had COVID-19 you nearly died. Is it, were they exaggerating when they said, I'm looking here at the photo of you, the caption underneath says uh, that you were, you were on your deathbed. Was it that dire? It was very dire. What and happened? I think, um, I, I, you know, I, I told your producer the lowest point in my life was when my wedding was called off, but the scariest point in my life was when I had COVID. So, you know, as founders, you, you always push off, you take your family for granted a lot, 
right? Uh, and I don't, I don't say every founder does, but like, at least I did. Like, you know, I always say like, okay, you know what? Uh, business is the first baby, COVID hit, double down on work, work like crazy. And the fundraise takes a lot out of you, mm -hmm. like the diligence and all of this stuff. So I told my wife, let's celebrate after COVID's over. I mean, sorry, let's celebrate after the fundraise is closed and we'll go somewhere where like, you know, where it's calm and everything else with the family. And we announced the fundraise, the Series A, December 10th. And like my wife's an ER physician. <laughs> so to, uh, around uh, Christmas time, we're all not feeling well. We got tested. We all have COVID. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. But you know what? You always think that it's not going to happen to you. You read all these stories. And, and the first yeah. thing that occurred to me, my family, and my wife is like, listen, you guys are like getting carried away. My parents spend six months with us. Even my parents are like, oh, this feels like the common cold. This feels like the common Your cold. Your parents like, had it too. Yeah, parents had it too. My kids, wow. everyone. Your kids, and my parents. Oh. And how'd your kids do? You've got a baby and you've got- um, I got a two-year-old and a seven-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, right, and they, so what happens to them when they have COVID? They're they fine? were fine. They're okay, fine. Good. They just like, it was all flu-like symptoms, right? Okay. It was all flu-like symptoms. For everyone, symptoms. including your parents, except including for my you. parents. Even for me, it was fine. January 2nd, I wake up unable to breathe. And I'm like, I felt like on, on January 1st, on New Year's, I was fine. I was like on the mend. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get out. I'm going to go for a run. And like, I just lied down and everything was fine. And I went to sleep that night, woke up in the middle of the night, unable to breathe in chills, in chills, like literally, like I was going to poop my pants in, and, and like, it was bad. So I'm like, something changed. I don't know. It like somebody drugged me and, and is punching me in the chest. Something, something crazy happened. And then they started, uh, my wife has a pulse ox off, off um, as a physician. So she checked my- Pulse oxometer. Is that what yeah, it's yeah. called? Yeah, okay. yeah, pulse oxometer. Uh, so she puts it on me and she's like, hey, your oxygen's fluctuating, let's monitor it. Somehow got through the day, the next day, I'm like starting to cough and it's paining. And like, you went from like being fine and thinking like, what the hell, this is all a joke to the next day. It's like, Jesus Christ, like, what is, what am I going through? The next night, um, my wife's like, your oxygen levels are way below normal and it's not it's not jumping up. So let's take you to the hospital. So she drives me to Stanford. They check my, they do the x-ray and I got, it turned into pneumonia. My lungs were not visible. I could try, try to show you in, uh, on the photo. So the, it was all white in the x-ray. Because all what white. was, because there was, there was liquid in your lungs? No, the, the, the virus has taken over the lungs. Wow. Uh, and that's how, like, what happens is when, when the virus takes over your lungs, you lose your ability to breathe. And that's why you need to get put on oxygen. And if you can't sustain, uh, sustain breathing yourself, then you need to be on a ventilator. So they took, they said, you basically got COVID pneumonia, right? Like, and, and we need to keep you in the hospital. You need to be on breathing support. So they put me on oxygen starting at a level 10. And my wife kept saying consistently one thing, whatever it is, make sure he doesn't go on a ventilator. My wife, despite being a physician at Stanford, they wouldn't let her in the, in the hospital room. So yeah. imagine the situation. She's not allowed in the hospital room. She's the only person I trust with, with medicine yeah. and, and with, with my medicals. And, um, and they've now stuck an IV and they're giving me steroids like the dexamethasone via the IV and I'm on oxygen. My wife can't see me. All my wife says is let's set up a Zoom. And she says, you're not turning off the Zoom. And I'm coughing my lungs out and I start uh, coughing blood several times, like blood's coming out, right? Like it's so painful. Um, and that was a horrible experience. Now, I've gone from like trying to close a series A and 
on the up and up popping like saying let's pop champagne and let's go travel and and uh and go like to hawaii or somewhere to like in the hospital literally and the pain was so intense the combination of the chest pain and the cough and the body ache i just felt like i was going to die like that i i forced myself up a couple nights and i was literally crying i'm like if i could change one thing i would have gone back and spend more time with the kids it's and and i'm seeing her my wife saying and i said like, all the more making you paranoid right she's like i don't want you to shut off zoom so now i'm like she knows something that i don't know she thinks oh, like maybe she's saying body well is in retrospect is that what she was doing is that her thinking this is going to be the end for him no but she's like she just wants to keep an eye on you she wants to keep an eye on yeah. me in case things yeah, get yeah, worse yeah. and yeah. the doctors because because they give you steroids that, that it makes you like just hype kind of like imagine you're in a lot of pain but the steroids like jacking you up so the doctors kept coming and checking on me saying hey are you feeling suicidal and like i kid you not man those are the kind of thoughts that go through your brains is like i just want to take everything off and just, just die right now i just want to be done right um and that was the thing and the way it came across in the press was uh, because after the 23 million series a we announced the 100 million facility and i've been the evangelist for the company as i was talking to the press people i still had the lingering cough and so san francisco business times like we should just do a story on this and i'm like oh, okay. i'm like fine you know uh i think i think it's a message in there that everyone needs to hear is like wake up and smell the roses uh it's not about pay more attention to your family pay more like appreciate things a little bit every day because tomorrow may not come right and i so what, you, what I, are you doing now with your family that's different so i think one of the key things i've done is like one more people die of indigestion than starvation or more companies so it's not like about doing everything at once but doing a little better every day putting my kids to bed at night uh uh trying to like you know um make dinner for them schedule time with them um uh, as soon as the first weekend after i got up, out of the hospital the first long weekend i set up a tent in the living room and i said let's camp together those kinds of things yeah, that are, are like yeah. after thoughts like yeah. forced time spending um before like anytime my kids started getting in the room i'd like shove them out now i like embrace them bring them in the zoom call those kinds of things like just yeah. let's embrace a little do a little better every day um it's not the people it's not the money in your bank that matters it's the people around your tombstone let's, see, let's say it's not just the money in the bank let's not say it, it doesn't matter but yeah it's not it's, just the money in your bank because the people around the your tombstone it's a combination uh, you know what i've been doing is i i have this little go it's like a gopro but gopro was just never stable enough for me it's this dji action camera i just keep that running with the kids sometimes they don't even pay attention to it and then we capture those random moments in a way that if it was on my phone I had to take it out I wouldn't do it and that way I remember what we did and they they get to relive it years later and see dad was there yeah and I I think I should do that is that the drone one the DJI or you know what DJI is known for drones they made a GoPro that's better than GoPro look at the reviews on YouTube I it will. is it's so much more stable and it's rugged I just put it like when we do these long drives which we're doing now more under covid I just put it right there in so that it could capture them in the back seat going through their nonsense my my 4 uh, year old tried to open the door while we were driving cuz he was so angry the other day I captured it let them remember what life was like then and also the good moments when we're doing things like I taught my my uh, now 6 year old had to tell time with an analog watch i just kept the camera going just put it on the desk while we were doing it and then i had this quick compilation that i looked at this morning one minute and you see him just go i can't do it i'm like you almost see him thinking i'm so stupid i can't do it 
And then a second later in the next shot, you see him actually getting it. And I feel like those little memories are good for us. And it's good reminders for them. This is the way it was. You used to not know how to tell time. You got frustrated. You figured it out. You used to not know how to, I don't know, snowboard. You figured it out. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm actually going to take you up on that and set it up. And I'll send you a note in a few months. I think that's great advice. (laughs) I'm looking forward to seeing you in person. I don't know if it's going to be here or, oh, Austin, let me close out with this. I told, I said, I'm going to Austin. What do I do? Sujin, I guess, lives in Austin. Our friend Sujin, uh, what is Sujin up to? He runs a bunch of companies. I always refer to him as a guy from Milkshake because that's what he sponsored me with. He he is a serial entrepreneur and he builds and grows companies. Milkshake. Yes. Milkshake. Yeah, right. That's what he is. He's doing it phenomenally well. I message him and I go, look, my wife's worried about us moving to Austin because of the heat. He goes, yeah, dude, it's a serious thing. I'm going to get out of here uh, in the summers. But he's he and a few other people have helped guide me. I'm looking at houses. It's hard to find. They're very expensive. And many of my friends, I won't reveal their names in case they don't want to know to be known public. They're building a house there. What's the deal with building a house in Austin instead of just buying one? Because so what happened? I think I got lucky. I got crazy last April, May uh, when COVID started and I just couldn't be bottled in. And like my wife put us on on the most strict protocol here because she's a healthcare professional. So I got out on a flight. I said, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Austin. I have some very close friends, uh, like almost like family people I grew up with, went there and, and started looking at homes. And there were two homes or three homes we try to put an offer on because it's so cheap. And they went for overbidding. And I said, the last thing I'm going to do is overbid on a house in Austin because you you don't even think, you're like, dude, I'm coming to Austin to get a deal. The last thing I'm going to do is overbid. Right. And I'm seeing everything. When you say they, were, they weren't expensive, what are you seeing? I'm seeing nothing under 2 million where we're looking. Right now, right? So back then, so okay. I went to Austin, <laughs> I, back then, meaning a year ago, I, I went to a community and I got a lot for $35,000. I just threw down and like, and they said, uh, it's Toll Brothers is the uh, house, uh, is, a, is a builder. And they said, you know, the lot is 35,000, we'll build the house. And I think the whole house was like $650,000. Mm. For $35,000, I put down on a 17 and a half thousand square foot lot. That's uh, half okay. an acre, right? Okay. And the home I'm building is a six bedroom, almost 6,100 square foot house. And I got it all locked in for six hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. Today in that community, my 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 really close friend who also is building a house there, he tells me that the lot next to you went for three hundred fifty thousand dollars in overbidding. So 10X. that's what's happening. Yeah. 10X. So like so I got there. I got lucky. I got in ahead of the curve and my frustration with COVID made me do an impulse buy. And I'm like, dude, it's just so cheap. $650,000, six bedroom home. It's massive. I'm like the, the best, even if we don't want to move, we'll sell it after. But, yeah. but now I'm looking at it, people, that it's jumped. Like it's already 2X, 3X, right? The, the lot prices are going like insane, 10X. So, And I guess there must be more, I don't know this area. Well, I guess there must be enough space to do that. I don't think you could do that here in the Bay Area. It's not like there's empty lots somewhere where some guy's going to sell it to you and then some toll brother company is going to build it up. The, the, the community where we're building, there's like 8,000 homes there, new homes. Mm. So oh, like new, yeah. new home. So Austin has a lot of empty space where people are building, right? So what about taxes? Uh, How much is it? Everyone's telling me uh, real estate taxes are expensive there. Real estate taxes are high. I think it's like uh, in the sort of 1.8 or 2.1, some some 2% range, but there's no state tax there. Um, there's uh, schools are free there. Good schools are free there. So like you I make out- that. Maybe I'm missing the good free schools. We, we're, we're doing a- 
we're doing a private school there, which still is half the price of private school here. So I guess that's the one big upside for us. So you you guys you're moving to Austin as well. We just applied to schools there based on uh, feedback from people who I've interviewed. It's great. <laughs> told me <laughs> told me what schools to go to. They're guiding me. It's great. I, no, I, so we're not fully committed, but I'm I'm committed. Yeah, so I think we're we're all gonna hang out together by where by by the fall there. That's what it seems <laughs> like, and hopefully it'll be as good as everyone says it is. All right. I'll throw I'll throw a big party and I'll invite everyone. Sujen, <laughs> you guys, Max Schuler from Sales Hacker, the whole nine yards. Everyone's there. You know what? This is the lamest thing, but one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to look at your muscles because I'm looking at your muscles on the freaking biz journals. I realized I didn't realize you're you're a bodybuilder. I was jacked before COVID. You're jacked, dude. <laughs> I'm like and constantly now, looking at. Now, can I see his pecs? Look at his shoulders. What the hell? I had no idea. I just thought of you as just like a tech person. No, no, I was jacked. I could do a hundred burpees at a stretch pre-COVID, and now I can't even like fart <laughs> without. Are you having trouble breathing? Like now I'm okay, but like uh, I think a month ago, going up and down the stairs was like making me tired. Washing dishes was making me tired. I'm I'm getting. But otherwise, okay. you're back to normal. I, you think you'll be able to run? Uh, I'm gonna give it a try. I said I said uh, I'm gonna start doing some bands and like hop on the peloton starting this this uh, this weekend. I'm gonna try to get okay. like I'm gonna try to do five sets of ten burpees. Right. I think burpees is good exercise and try to build up to that hundred. I'm going to start doing that, start doing some running. I'm going to gradually, you know, not die of indigestion here, but like do a little better every <laughs> day. Up to it. Yeah. All right. Uh, the website is uh, boast.ai. It still takes me to boastcapital.com. I'm guessing you guys are in the process of transitioning, right? No, it's because boastcapital.com has great SEO juice. Uh, that Sujin will tell you how you can keep that on the new domain. All right. Uh, <laughs> and I'm guessing people could just go over there, get on a call with someone. Yeah, that's the way it works. You just get like on a call with someone and they'll talk to you and see if it's a good fit, you know, within a single phone call. If it's not a good fit, you know, within a single phone call too. And uh, what a great freaking business. You really nailed it with this one. Don't you think? Of course you think. No I think so. I think so. Uh, I, I think I hit my definition of success when I was uh, sort of just graduating university today. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so no regrets. I can swing for the fences right now and nothing to lose. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for doing this interview. And I want to thank the two sponsors who made this interview happen. Listen up, people. If you want an idea that will start off as a service and but eventually turn into software, go to HostGator. Get your website to start building the business. HostGator.com slash Mixergy will get you the lowest price from them. And if you want a service that will handle your bookkeeping properly, your, your the payments to your people and handle your people and keep them from taking over your social accounts and everything else, Really, Rippling is the service. They are HR and all the tools you need to manage your people available at, at rippling.com slash Mixergy. Lloyd, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much. We did use HostGator in the early days. I wish there was Rippling back then. <laughs> are you guys gonna are you guys gonna integrate with Rippling yet? We will. We will. In the next uh, quarter, we will definitely. I imagine. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks so much. Take care, Andrew. It was fun.